You are listening to the Necropolis Podcast, which is brought to you by Jason from Goatcraft and Shelly from HeatMeditations.com and Metal Legion Magazine. Welcome to Necropolis. We're back with another roundtable discussion focus episode on the infamous Bathory from Sweden. Rest in peace, Quarathon. But anyway, uh, sorry for the delay in episodes. Uh, I know Joseph went down to a festival in Houston to check out that Celtic Frost uh, performance. It was Tripticon playing Celtic Frost and Hellhammer. So uh, really je- jealous I was unable to make that, but I'm sure he had a great time there. Um, and then I went up to a, a conference, classical music conference up in Connecticut at Yale University. And that you know took up another weekend. So we were delayed and trying to make sure our schedule is really messed. So we have the whole crew here. So that is why we are uh, about a month after last episode. So uh, today, we, like I said, we are going to be discussing that Bathory. And uh, Bathory has a really soft spot in my heart. Or my heart has a soft spot for Bathory because uh, when I first you know, really got into black metal, uh, that Bathory was very important. So important that I got a little kitten when I was 18 and I named the, the cat Bathory. And Bathory recently passed away, and it hit me really, really hard because that cat was the coolest ever, and I really miss her a lot. But uh, anyway, we have the crew here. We have Mr. Shelley from HateMeditations.com, a Metal Legion magazine. Thank you, Shelley. Hello. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me back. Um, good to be back with the uh, usual crew. Yes, sir, and great to have your contributions. I know you're eager for this episode today. And we also have Tyler. Tyler's rejoining us today. And uh, always value his insights on uh, metal. And uh, so, Tyler, thank you for joining today. I really missed this. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> oh, no problem. And I'm sorry we got busy with other stuff, but that's life. And, uh, of course, we have Joseph April from uh, – he used to be an Invisible Oranges, but he cast that to the wind. But now he's a freelance metal guy. And uh, we got the rogue, Joseph April. Welcome. Hi there, everybody. Um, and yeah, as Jason mentioned, uh, went and visited Texas and saw Hell's Heroes, which hopefully will be a fine addition to the heavy metal festival circuit in the States. Yeah, from the pictures that I saw, and you know, a lot of people that I know were there, and I know some of the musicians that played, uh, they said it was a great time, a great audience. And I like this guy, Cryptos in Houston, he has, has like a burger truck and the burger truck was slinging burgers there at the festival and it sounds like a, a lot of cool people were there and i'm really it's really unfortunate i was unable to make it it's just there's so much on my plate lately and uh anyway um so this bathory um so what i really love about bathory and i'm sure we'll expound upon this you know quite a bit is he's one of the radicals he was uh Corthon was definitely certainly one of the radicals in metal where I consider him on par with, you know, Tom G. Warrior being a radical, you know, with Hellhammer, um, uh, Varg, you know, with Rob Darkin and all these radical types of figures. And if you want to look at classical music, like Wagner and radicals there, you know, just really thrusting their forms and uh, creating something new while doing it. So Bathory is a, a band that I've always been drawn to, but the, the later Bathory, I would say that my cutoff point is that Blood, Fire, Death at the beginning of the Viking era, which is still really black metal, but it's kind of ushering in the Viking era of Bathory. And uh, I don't really listen to Hammerheart that much just because of the freaking vocals. My goodness, it's, 
makes me squirm whenever I hear them. <laughs> it's just very unrefined, uh, heavy metal singing and just never really messed with me. But getting into the discography of that Bathory, that like the first Bathory album, I would say it's kind of, you know, heavy metal, or, you know, a little motorhead influence and stuff like that in there. But then uh, I feel like The Return is the first real black metal album you know, in existence and under the sign of black mark, just refine that a little bit more, but the return is really the beginning point for Bathory for me. How about you, Shelley? Yeah. You, you'll get no argument from me on, on the return being the first sort of full blooded black metal album. Um, more generally for Bathory. Um, I think in the Burzum episode, we drew a comparison with Varg and Quorfon in, I believe it was Joseph that mentioned that he's like an unreliable narrator of his own, career in the Corfon is a notorious was a notorious um I'll just say it uh, a liar <laughs> or you, you he say toll toll tailor you know yeah, the, yeah to be you know charitable yeah he would bend the truth uh, or be very liberal with the truth around his influences and um the early history of Bathory is kind of steeped in its own separate mythology uh for that reason in, in terms of how those records were recorded, um, what kind of metal Quorfon was interacting with at the time, how much of the early Bathory was from his own imagination. And that's almost like the perfect origin story for a, a formative black metal band as well. And it's kind of, I would agree, I'd put him in the same category as Tom G. Warrior and so on, but he's he's still with us and he's able to kind of, you know, speak on his own legacy. Whereas for Quorfon, obviously passed away before his time and, that's just only strengthened the kind of mythology around him. And yeah, we'll get into like the, the reason he's so influential for uh, black metal in particular, but I think it is, you know, it just makes his legacy that bit more profound that he anticipated the move towards Viking um, mythology and sort of um, exploring that history and that kind of pantheon and, you know, borrowing sort of, cinematic elements of music as well and and some classical as well to kind of give the music a more panoramic feel and he was again ahead of the curve with that when you know yeah bands like um graveland picked that up later in the 90s and you know a whole host of other black metal bands as well um and for me i do i do rate the um the viking albums as well i could understand why people find the vocals of bit jarring but i think if you listen to a track like home of once brave off hammerheart he can carry a tune and he does have a voice if the melody is basic enough but on some of the other tracks on that album he does probably overstretch himself to the point where he's doing things that only a very adept singer should be doing um but i still think those albums hold up even today even the fact that they are quite rugged by comparison to some of the more like big budget viking arms that have been released since then but yeah, it's it's a considerable legacy to dive into, and there was a considerable trough um, within the mid '90s in his career as well, um, which is also bears a certain fascination for me in and of itself. Uh, but yeah, fascinating figure and one of the icons of like first wave black metal for me. Excellent, excellent, Tyler. What are your general thoughts about Bathory? Well, my thoughts kind of run fairly close to yours, Jason. I mostly 
listen to what you would call the black metal era Bathory. Uh, when I was uh, younger, it was probably Blood, Fire, Death. That was my favorite album by them. I still love that album. But nowadays, I mostly listen to The Return and occasionally the self-titled album. I don't really listen to Under the Mark, uh, Under the Black Mark, Sign of the Black Mark. Wow. Under the Sign of the Black Mark that often. And uh, when it comes to the Viking era, albums uh, i suppose that i could say at various points in my life that i really liked hammer heart but the reality is that uh when i listen to hammer heart i tend to listen to shores and flames song to haul up high and home of once brave and that's it <laughs> i would listen to those three tracks and then i uh, turn the album off and uh move on to something else <laughs> um so um uh, I do I do think it's a good album. Um, it's just not one that gets a lot of my uh, listening as much as their other albums. But as far as what their legacy is within um, heavy metal in general and black metal in particular, uh, I feel it's indisputable. Uh, Bathory innovated a, I suppose you could say, a lexicon uh, within black metal. I feel especially on... on um, the uh, first two albums and uh, largely on the third one too, they created a sort of riff language that was later picked up and developed by the second wave of black metal. Um, I would say that if those albums, even though, you know, the first two are largely my favorite had an issue, it was that they didn't have very, uh, what I would call distinctive riff shapes. I think that issue was corrected, so to speak, on Blood, Fire, Death, but also the issue, so to speak, with Blood, Fire, Death is it also kind of stopped using as much of that unique riff language that Bathory had developed or innovated on their first three uh, uh, records. But still, the accomplishment of what they did with those albums is uh, absolutely amazing and changed the face of uh, heavy metal for years to come yeah it's kind of interesting you mentioned the riff shape you know on blood fire death and i i kind of feel like they really like bathory was really like the first album uh just you know a really take extreme take on heavy metal um and there's you know a little bit of motorhead in there too um just the their influence is just a little bit more extreme and then they, they had the, the innovative black metal period where, you know, Gorthon was a, a big radical um, and, you know, just coming off the most extreme shit at the time. And then after that, he kind of returned to the influences with, you know, Hammerheart and all that with that heavy metal sound. And he just kind of continued that for the rest of his career. Um, you know, there are little touches, of, you know, flavors here and there of like black metal and things like that. But overall, I would say the... And, later Bathory that the the heavy metal influences the prominent influence there how about you mr joseph what are your general thoughts on Bathory? well Bathory is possibly i think i've mentioned private to all of you probably one of the most important bands uh in heavy metal to me and probably the, one of the ones i've listened to the most um I, it would be interesting, obviously I can see Tyler and you, Jason, we have certain um, stop points with the band. Um, so I'd be curious with Shelly how far 
either of us go with their discography because I potentially might be the one who enjoys the most breadth um, of their discography. Um, not the first album. The first album I ever got was Bloodfire Death, um, which I remember buying from a Tower Records, and I'm pretty sure it was a bootleg because taking the insert out of the CD and the back was just entirely blank and it was just one piece of paper um uh but still that was a jolt to the system hearing that album um but then uh i think second third bathory albums for me were the two nordland albums which uh were the last two recordings full recordings that Corthorne did before he died and i still thoroughly enjoy those and it is you know a bit interesting how i was exposed to that before what's considered the classic Viking albums like Hammerheart and Twilight of the Gods. But um, yeah, no, I, I think from the debut and the return all the way through to the Viking era to some of the later material I enjoy, there is material of his I don't particularly care for. Um, Shelley alluded to some of the mid-90s, uh, particularly uh, Requiem and Octagon are... Uh, I think him growing tired of the Viking era and wanting to go to some sort of blackened thrash and especially with the production, it just not working out very well. Um, although in the midst of that is the peculiarity of blood on ice, which is something we can discuss. Um, but yeah, in general, I think Corthrone's legacy in the history of metal and certainly in black metal is indisputable. Um, just, massive uh, influence all around and and even beyond black metal i know that carl sanders of nile has talked about bathory being one of his biggest influences um so uh, you know if in the hyperbole of heavy metal language um you know despite not having you know the attention of someone like a dio or, or lemmy uh, uh i would consider corthron a god of heavy metal Oh wow, oh, God! Well, I would consider him a, a true innovator of black metal. But Shelly, I actually have a good question for you, Shelly. Um, a lot of people say Venom is the first black metal band because they have an album called Black Metal. Um, but as we've stated, the return from Bathory is the first black metal album. Would you like to expound upon that a little bit? <laughs> so. Yeah, when I when I said in the in my introduction piece um, that Corfon bent the truth, I think it's indisputable that he had heard uh, black metal by Venom by the time he started writing the material for first Bathory album. Um, you can see this not just in the riffs and the you know the the crossover Motorhead influenced bit of punk in there as well, and new wave of British heavy metal, but also in the imagery lyrical themes and the uh the way that Corfon dressed as well um you just have to google an image of, of Venom in the early 1980s and Corfon in the early Bathory days and the the influence is is pretty stark and it would be quite coincidental um if Corfon just happened upon it a, a handful of years after Venom but to answer to answer your question directly um I don't think it's a categorical distinction in the one thing is not black metal, one thing is. I think there is, with any kind of musical evolution, there is a spectrum, there's a gradient, and you get, at some point on the course of that evolution, you get 
something that is distinctly new. And somewhere between Venom's black metal and the return under the sign of the black mark, you get what is, you know, commonly like agreed upon as full-blooded black metal. Um, black metal, the album by Venom, is a mix of that new wave of British heavy metal, motorhead, punk. Um, but what they brought to the table was the theatre, the drama, and the sense of darkness um, and the cultism. But they, by their own admission, say that it was just a bit playful for them. It was something to dabble in, to kind of explore and maybe add a bit of uh, body and gravitas to their music. For Corfon, it was still like a, you know, one wandering of his imagination. He wasn't as serious as, you know, the Norwegian guys were, but he took it to that next level where he gave it a bit more sincerity. He stripped out the humour that was still there. I mean, we, you know, we all know about Teacher's Pet on, you know, Venom's Black Metal. Bathory stripped out that humorous element and put in a much more kind of, um, the delivery was had a much more conviction to it much more kind of um, malevolence. Um, and for that, I think, as well as the sort of developments of the riffs on around the return, is when you start to see full-blooded black metal as we know it take shape. And for that reason, I don't think, I think Venom is, is just of a slightly different era. It's, although it was released in the early 80s, I think it's still very much of the 70s era of heavy metal, whereas Bathory is hearkening to something new at that point, something as yet unknown, but you would quickly see it kind of map out Fruits of Bloodfire Death. It's kind of the, the quote-unquote black metal and the abstract is what Venom would kind of be because you have the themes of black metal, but not the application of it, the sonic application. So uh, Tyler, do you have any uh, carry-on thoughts or piggyback thoughts to what Shelley just said? Nothing that really deviates from what he said that much. I mean, I have a pretty low amount of uh, respect for Venom, and I know that irritates a lot of people in the underground scene because they feel that it's uh, very pretentious to deny the historical place of Venom, which I don't deny the historical influence. You know, many of my favorite black metal bands were, you know, very fond of Venom, and I understand that. But to me... I cannot, I haven't heard an argument that's convinced me that Venom is anything but faster motorhead with satanic themes. Um, whereas, like I said earlier, Bathory on their early albums, specifically with The Return, although they started doing this with their self-titled, uh, developed a kind of riff language that while they may not have uh, utilized it to the extent that second wave Norwegian black metal uh, and some later black metal bands did, they were the innovators of that language, that riff language that would uh, become what we all know as, um, as black metal. That language was also interspersed with riffs from Motorhead and some hardcore punk uh, but it, they were the first ones to do it. And in that sense, uh, they were groundbreaking and I think have much more uh, merit to be called the first black metal band than Venom does. It's kind of interesting, like uh, Bathory, because they did usher in the, the sonic aesthetic of black metal. But after black metal got big, you know, they were back playing essentially heavy metal Viking themes. So, 
they could have really capitalized just continuing just to play their their primitive form of black metal and they would have been even bigger i believe but joseph what are your kind of thoughts on that do you believe venom was black metal or was venom just like a the i don't know like a, a clown um it, it, it's funny because i think the motorhead comparisons are apt although uh, i think lemmy had a very low opinion of uh motorhead uh, I, i'm sorry <laughs> lemmy had a very low opinion of venom uh i i actually the first especially the first two albums i of venom i think are fantastic i i love that but in the same sense i'm also a huge motorhead fan and and i enjoy that kind of punky black and roll death and roll you know what would come later but you know the roots of that i i eat that stuff up like it's cereal and i'm seven years old um certainly the evolution like bathory i feel is an evolution of that um and i'm going to bring it up many a time and i'm sure shelly will as well but again it's part of Corthrone being the um untrustworthy narrator of his own story um you know in some ways given the viking influence and everything you know i almost wonder if he was self-conscious but you know he sort of has this low-key sort of like personality about him um but he claimed that the musical influences he used on bathory certainly at the beginning were motorhead black sabbath and gbh the um early 80s punk band uh from the uk it was at uk 82 um but uh i undoubtedly think he knew venom I mean, he just didn't want to admit um that uh i think in general and it'll mention it later there's a lot of bands that i think he took some influence or cited um that he never wanted to openly admit partially because it would demystify what he was doing um but i think it's undoubtedly that's true that bathory as a musical entity is more of a strong core for what would happen in the 90s um with the second wave I mean, when you look at the first wave in general, you know, you think of Venom, you think of Merciful Fate, you think of Celtic Frost, Hellhammer, and certainly a few other bands that were smaller. And I would include even the very early recordings of Creator and Sodom. Um, but the key thing with Bathory was is that sound, and especially the return and um, under the sign. Um, because there's elements of Venom and Merciful Fate uh, and certainly Hellhammer and Celtic Frost that show up in the second wave, but the unifying element is Bathory. Like the idea of a black metal band from the second wave that would be like, oh, we took nothing from Bathory it would be almost an asinine statement. It, it would be lies. Um, so uh, just to sum that up, though, Venom, I think are part of black metal but um in different ways and musically more like 10 percent of what would become black metal whereas bathory is at least half i would say to come at it from like the listener's perspective for me i draw a comparison between the difference between say led zeppelin and black sabbath in that led zeppelin have heavy metal moments and there are like riffs and 
particular passages where you can think, all ah, right, that's that's germinal heavy metal. But then when you hear Black Sabbath, it's like, ah, right, this is the thing actually taking form and taking a recognizable thing that I, I know, like looking back on it. And in the same way, I would say the experience of listening to Venom is just different because I, I like a lot of heavy metal as well. And I really love Motorhead. But it's like listening to Motorhead is a very different experience to listening to Burzum in the same way that Baffery is a very different headspace to Venom, despite the obvious similarities. There's just that sense of um, mysticism and theatre um, present in Baffery, whereas with Venom, you kind of just get yeah, a bit of a bit of comedy and a bit of just sort of lighthearted having fun, despite, you know, despite the fact that the music is trying to be dramatic, it's almost like the, the difference between the, um, the form and the reflection. Um, but it's interesting that by the time you get to Bloodfire Death, um, Corfon is almost making fun of those comparisons because he quotes Teacher's Pet on the track Pace Till Death famously, he just does the little lick at the start. But also Bloodfire Death, as, as you've already mentioned, is like the album where the... Um, the musicianship gets tightened up and the riffs get tightened up a lot, but you lose some of the black metal elements. Like I've always said, Bloodfire Death used to be my favorite Bathory album, but now I turn to it less and less, not because it's a bad album, but it does seem very schizophrenic in a lot of ways. A lot of it is almost like listening to Slayer of that era. It's very fast, very intense thrash, but then you get the the, the beginnings of, you know, the Viking era with a fine day to die and the, and the title track as well. Um, and you kind of just hear, you can hear Corfon figuring things out. But as the black metal, as the musicianship, sorry, tightens up, the kind of the primal, um, almost uncontrolled, like um, primitivism of the return and under the sign kind of starts to get lost um, in translation a little bit for me. And for that reason, I've always, or sort of more recently, I've sort of looked at Bloodfire Death as a bit of a, a bit of a troubled album in places, but no, no less fascinating for the fact, but just an interesting, almost transitional moment in, in the mind of Corfon. Um, with that, I would just add, I, I pretty much thoroughly agree with that. Um, I mean, it's a transitional album, I definitely think. Um, but certainly with the note of Slayer, I think is really on the mark. Um, I have my own theory that that was his in a way, response to things like uh, Ring and Blood and Hell Awaits. I think that was his response to Slayer. Um, certainly, uh, someone pointed out to me, um, God, was the track? Uh, it's like the one right after A Fine Day to Die. Um, Golden Walls of Heaven. Yeah, Golden Walls of Heaven. Literally pulls a bit out of the title track from Hell Awaits. Um, so, I think... In a way, like I feel like the album is almost sort of structured a bit longer and sort of like I think him feeling like he was doing a better job, but it's structured in a way like Ring and Blood um, with kind of two more uh, heavy weighted songs and then just a flurry through the middle. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of jumping all over the place, but uh, just wanted to. That's a really good comparison, actually, because yeah, Ring and Blood is famous for two songs that bookend the album but mm. uh when you actually kind of listen to it yeah there's a whole like chunk in the middle which you know the first few times you listen to it is almost like a blur because it is just so intense and so um like 
I don't want to say monotonous because that will make it sound like I don't like it, but it's it is very like it's a monoculture of just um like angular noise um that comes at you and you can pick it together as you as you slowly listen to it more and more and Bloodfire death the first time i heard it again i'd only heard a fine day to die and the title track so it was a bit of a shock to know that the bit in the middle is um sort of more straight edge kind of thrash speed metal almost and um there are sort of still epic moments i think the golden walls of heaven is, has quite a claim to be an epic track as well um and Diaz Uri as well is is like um, a good sort of a very kind of solid proto black metal song as well in that respect. But yeah, for the most part, it is quite sort of almost sort of domestic in a lot of ways. It lacks the um, it lacks the mysticism and the esoterica of the return and under the sign for that reason because it is it is quite direct for quite long periods. It's interesting to talk about the Slayer influence on. Uh, well, the possible Slayer influence since Scorthon never admitted it on uh, Bloodfire Death because I, I have felt, especially more recently, although I don't know, uh, I'm not as certain that it could have been an influence on Corthon. Um, I because I'm, I'm not sure of the chronology for one, but even if it uh, is uh, after, you know, even if the self-titled is like significantly after the release of Show No Mercy, um, I don't know if it, Show No Mercy was necessarily an influence on Corthon, but uh, I did think while listening to the self-titled recently that it is, uh, in some ways, not as much of Show No Mercy, but an enjoyable experience to listen to in a similar uh, vein. It had like a similar kind of uh, style to it, and that very easily could be not so much because Show No Mercy influenced uh, Corthon on the self-titled album as much as they just had very similar influences. But I just thought that was an interesting aside to bring up, especially since we had mostly been talking about Bloodfire Death, actually, and hadn't gone into as much detail with the first two albums. Yeah, yeah, we, we really haven't structured this episode in any sort of meaningful way. <laughs> it's just kind of all over the place. And hopefully the listeners are okay with that, because my, my mind is jumping from topic to topic about Bathory right now. And I think there is like going in, let's go into the, the early period of Bathory where, you know, I, I think there's a lot of resemblance to the uh, early uh, second wave of black metal period too. You know, especially, you know, both areas, you know, Norway and Sweden are in Scandinavia. And uh, Corthon was really like, especially with the Viking stuff, he was really um, into like the pre-Christian mythology of the land, essentially. As were the uh, you know, like Varg and all of that, and they went and burned down churches and all that. Uh, thankfully, uh, Orthon didn't go to jail for anything like that, but he did have a, a motorcycle that he liked to ride around. So he was a biker, biking. But uh, um, but he said it in one interview, like had um, Bathory been from Japan, he would probably have lyrics about samurai culture and mythology and stuff like that. So I, I the unifying thread I see between this first wave of black metal um with you know Corth Corthon being one of the biggest figures uh perhaps the biggest um also view Tom G warrior uh just the the sheer oozing darkness coming from him being a influence on uh like a Byronic influence on black metal but the uh the black metal philosophy I would say would more come from Corthon more than anything else and he was really obsessed with 
the pre-Christian uh, mythologies of the land, as were the uh, the second wave of black metal Norwegians. Any thoughts on that, anybody? Sure. So I think that with the Satanism on Bathory's earliest albums, that while Corthon had said, you know, despite his unreliability in numerous interviews, that he didn't really believe in Satanism, that he didn't really believe in the values of it or of darkness, and that it was uh, just an attempt to shock people. I think what's important about what he did with those albums and how it influenced second wave Norwegian black metal is the extremity that he was willing to invoke in order to shock people. It was a much greater step than uh, than even a band like Venom was, which that's also what differentiated Venom from earlier bands if you're talking purely about subject matter, was that they outright embraced Satan rather than in mention Satan in the context of like a lot of Black Sabbath songs where it has more of an at where they could have more of an attitude of a warning. Um but uh Bathory outright embraced that darkness to an even further extent to where it wasn't just simply invoking the name of Satan, but invoking the concept of darkness in general. And that extremity that they were willing to embrace, I think, made them uh something more than just simply a shock rock act, which I think Venom could almost loosely qualify as. It's uh, related to um, what something I remember reading from uh, Tom G. Warrior's book on the history of Hellhammer, uh, Only Death is Real, where he speaks about the level to which Hellhammer was willing to uh, take the concepts of darkness seriously to the extent that they were willing to explore very extreme subject matter in their songs and the point at which Tom G warrior realized that their willingness to do this had taken them a step beyond uh, venom. And I think that's like, was a pivotal moment in both the history of Hellhammer and Bathory for pushing the extremity of heavy metal forward towards what would become uh, black metal later on in the context of this discussion, but really in the context of the development of extreme metal overall, black metal and death metal. Um, with the Viking era albums, uh, I think it's uh, just another step in the, the same process, maybe not a further step because it's a different subject. Um, but I think it's another step in Corthon showing a willingness to take a seriousness to his music that prior bands that were just trying to upset people with their opposition to Christianity weren't willing to do. Yeah, I think um, just to speak on structure as well, we are focusing on the albums up to Bloodfire Death. So I'm fine if we jump around a little bit then, but then we'll move on to the, the Viking era. But sorry, just to come back on Tyler's point, I think it's also one of the things that marked early Baffery and Hellhammer and others apart is it's important to note that at this point they didn't really they didn't have the genre distinctions that we're discussing now and that black metal was its own thing death metal was its own thing and thrash metal was its own thing it, it was much more of a miasma of genre labels that got thrown around but it didn't have the exacting definitions that we kind of speak in today and i think in co that context it's important to note that what set baffery apart as well was this sense of not quite being in control of their own music. If you look at a band like Venom, it, in sort of new wave of British heavy metal standards, they're not particularly good musicians, but they are at least making a show of trying to 
embody the sort of virtuosity and kind of uh, theatre that a lot of heavy metal bands had at that time. And then as you look at the 80s progressing, more mainstream metal bands like Iron Maiden were tightening up their musicianship and part of the show was these um, dexterous solos and so on. And Bathory, Corfon was a, a very competent guitarist and I think he's underrated as, a, as an actual musician um, a lot. But that um, doesn't really come through on the first few albums because the focus was on being so primitive and so primal. And if you listen to an album like Under the Sign of the Black Monk, the playing is adept, but there are moments where Corfon almost seems completely out of control in a good way. And like the, the music is almost beyond him in a way that, again, the second wave of black metal kind of took um, to a, an even greater extreme. And that lends the satanic lyrics an extra sort of layer of uh, seriousness, almost like hearing them when you think of like mainstream metal bands of the mid 80s or whatever. And then you hear a band, an album like Under the Sign of the Black Mark. It's just so in a different league of conviction and delivery that it, it sort of brings the themes to life, um, regardless of whether Corfon actually meant it or not in terms of, you know, invoking the occult and so on. But that sense of just losing control of your craft, I think, is is really key to black metal in general. And it really starts coming to the fore on those mid-80s albums. Yeah, it kind of turned into something greater than the individuals. Um and you you know you have you know expressions that are greater than the, the individuals and then you have behaviors that come from the individuals that are greater than the individuals such as you know the church burnings and murders and just being so extreme that you'll break the law and go to jail and all that so yeah i i do view him as a radical and he's, you know fortunately he didn't go to jail or anything but he did kind of have that same type of behavior, both the aesthetic um, of just being really, really, really extreme. And, uh, but he just channeled it all into his music, which is definitely different than what happened in Norway. Um, so, so we went into this episode without a real structure. I thought, you know, I didn't go album by album. And I apologize for that. And I understand some people like an album by album take, I just find the the Viking era to be very boring. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, Shelley, what, are we still in the the black metal period of Bathory? Do you want to jump on that? Bef uh, before, I mean, before we jump into Viking, I mean, uh, there's definitely some things about the early albums I want to talk about. But Shelley, you know, uh, sorry for interrupting there, but you know, no, go uh, ahead, go ahead. Uh. I mean, partially, I think we should talk about kind of the formation and the mystery of the membership of Bathory, which I think is kind of a key part of like the even before the first full length. Um, as far as I know, uh, besides Corthron, there's only been two official people who have come out and said, oh, yeah, we were part of Bathory, which is Jonas Ackerland on drums and Frederick Melander on bass, and they basically, uh, I believe, were on the Scandinavian Metal Attack, which uh, was the predecessor to the first album. Um, and no, ever since then, there have been people cited uh, as members of Bathory, and at a certain point, given the typical kind of black death metal, you know, pseudo names, 
but no one has ever come forward and been like, oh, yeah, no, I played on that or I did that. No one. Um, and a lot of people have, especially because of the quality of the recordings, have noticed that the drumming often sounds like a drum machine. And I'm certainly someone who generally believes that uh, besides that very, very early recording with those two guys, uh, almost the entire Bathory catalog is Corthron. His father, who he also denied was his father, but who worked as producer and may have performed some of the instruments, perhaps the bass sometimes, uh, and himself and a drum machine. Uh, I'm almost absolutely certain it's basically a drum machine on every album. And a lawnmower, too, because I, I think I believe there's <laughs> a lawnmower somewhere in there with the early Bathory. Because he recorded everything in his garage, right? Uh, no, I, I, well, I, there, I mean, according to him, they moved around through to different, few different situations. Um, and honestly, because of the access his father had, uh, I wouldn't be that surprised that he had access to a professional studio. Um, but it, it's just interesting to note because he always shied away from that actually being the truth. And again, it's a large part of his whole sort of, uh, you know, is he telling the truth or is he not? Um, but in essence, Corthrone is the first one-man black metal band. Uh, if we assume even on one album of those first four, that it was basically just him and maybe his father helping out in the studio. Yeah, there's two guys who seem to be uh, shrouded in mystery from 1988 through 1996. There was a guy named Kothar. Obviously, a stage name who played a uh, bass guitar, and there's also an a individual named Vorth, um, also in the same time period, who played drums. And like you said, no one's come forward to say that they are those individuals. Um, so yeah, that could have been Quarthon himself, or it could have been his father, or it could have been a, you know, who knows? Just uh, maybe one of his biker buddies or something. My understanding was that the return was. The only album from that era that was recorded in a professional studio. That's not to say it wasn't um, just again Corfon doing everything, but um, I think regardless of who else was on those albums, you are correct, Joseph, in saying that he was the first one-man black metal band because it was undeniably Corfon's vision that drove it all. There wasn't anyone else who was creatively having any input on on this project at all. So I, I think it's a fair, like a fair summation to, to say that. Um, well, I was going to say, should we um, move on to the Viking era? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, why don't we talk about like sort of the transition? Cause I think well, the Viking era, you know, the, there's roots of it as far as back as, under the sign of the black mark, which I would want to mention. Okay. Yeah. It would be interesting to talk about that because uh, the question I would have for everybody else, like especially Shelly and Joseph is um, something that I've been confused about. They talk about Bathory being foundational to both black metal and Viking metal. I'd like to know more detail as to how Bathory was foundational to what today is called Viking metal, because most of the bands I've heard explicitly identified as Viking metal from later on, like more contemporary Viking metal bands sound either like 
what I would consider melodic death metal or what is called a uh, folk metal, which is like melodic death metal with folk instruments. Yes. Beer uh, metal. Yeah. And I don't really hear too much similarities besides, I don't know, maybe Bathory use some, you know, acoustic guitar, uh, like intros and interludes and outros and clean vocals. And maybe there's some crossover there. I don't really hear too much what I would consider influence from what are called the Viking metal Bathory albums, uh, like musically, I, uh, maybe just in subject matter. Yeah, I would say that's akin to Venom, you know, being an influence on black metal. It's in the abstract because essentially uh, the Viking era is just essentially uh, heavy metal or a little bit of thrash and maybe some flavors of black metal here and there with uh, some really bad singing on it. Um, with, but guys, with... um, I'm going to come back to you on all of this and explain it in detail. So I will not leave you disappointed. And I'm sure Joseph will want to weigh in as well. Before we do that, um, we're going to tee up the transition that Bathory took. And I think Joseph alluded to on Under the Sign of the Black Mark. I'm assuming he's talking about the track Enter the Eternal Fire, which was like the first mid-paced plodding epic heavy metal number also call from the grave sorry also call from the grave um yeah i would say call from the grave it still it still embodies like a lot of the similar darkness of the surrounding material whereas enter the eternal fire takes despite the lyrical themes it takes more of a triumphalist kind of um mood a lot of the 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 riffs uh, kind of try to evoke more power than they do malevolence or darkness. But I think there's still, yeah, there's an argument you can make for both yeah. of those. But yeah, that's like the first time you start hearing the German all of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I look to those two tracks and, and I definitely get your point in terms of the triumphant versus the, the darkness. Um, that's certainly true. But um, there are the two tracks in that album that stand out as sort of these epics and they have this you know they're more mid-paced um there's sort of this emotional swell to the songs um and and certainly i feel like there's a germination from that into bloodfire death with a fine day to die and the title track and then finally what we get in ha hammerheart um i so it starts i feel like under the sign of the black mark this his i think interest in a more you know, and Jason, again, I, as a layman, uh, I have no idea how much, but, you know, this sort of Wagnerian this interest, um, which certainly with Under the Sun of the Black Mark has a direct connection because I think the album cover was a photo they took in secret of a production of Wagner um, with the, uh, what was it? I think professional wrestler who, <laughs> like, I think it was like after hours, they snuck backstage and took a photo of the professional wrestler with the mask on and then snuck back out. Um, but yeah, I mean, literally in, in the album covers, a Wagner connection. Yeah, it was a, a Swedish bodybuilder or something. I still can't believe that's a photograph, but yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, um, but just in between Bloodfire Death and Hammerheart, he recorded the material that would become Blood on Ice, which is essentially a concept album following a kind of similar narrative to the Conan film. But he shelved that and decided to decided that doing a Viking style concept album was slightly too ambitious for that time. And then in the mid 90s, he cleaned the tapes up and 
re-released it, but also with that release, all of the sleeve notes are kind of the source of a lot of the controversy that we're talking about around Corfon's own account of the early days of Bathory, because the sleeve notes go into detail on how those early albums were recorded. But again, it's kind of difficult to piece together what's true and what's a fabrication on his part. But instead, yeah, we got Hammerheart. And I I am sympathetic to people who really appreciate early Bathory and just can't stomach Hammerheart. Um, there are tracks on there that I find a bit hokey, like, you know, Father to Son and um, Baptized in Fire and Ice, where it is a bit, it's a bit too, well, it's again, it's evoking the sort of, almost unserious theatrics of Venom in a lot of ways. But then there are moments on there that I feel are very um, almost cinematic in their presentation. Um, and again, I, I think Corfon's vocals, um, it's all to do with the fact that he still means it. He's not the strongest vocalist, but he can still deliver the lines with enough conviction and passion that it's enough to carry it along. And I just really like the the kind of tight ambition like it's not so overblown that it becomes hard to swallow there's enough kind of orchestration and um narrative structures to the pieces that they they work still as like legitimate pieces of solid heavy metal but there's also these other elements that are creeping in and he's exploring his more melodic side and you know in a lot of ways that that makes him quite vulnerable to the audience that you know he's not relying on speed noise to kind of cloak a, a lack of substance he's just kind of trying to present this new vision and it's a little bit clunky but it's it still it's still to my mind holds up um yeah does anyone else want to come in on hammerheart and just tear, tear that down <laughs> i wouldn't want to tear it down really i kind of agree with you and i also agree with jason's uh general assessment about the heavy metal influences that are more present on those albums but what i will say about hammerheart that I do think is interesting um, also even in the context of what I was mentioning earlier about uh, being confused as to the influence of Bathory's Viking era on what's today called Viking metal uh, is that there are parts of Hammerheart, maybe just purely in the realm of technique, like on the song uh, Home of Once Brave, for instance, that I actually think are quite clearly heard those techniques being used in uh, some tracks uh, from second wave Norwegian black metal, like Burzum, for instance, um, uses some of like the repetitive, you can almost say slightly dissonant uh, riffing to create a sort of uh, like a cycling ambient effect. Um, and it only comes across on some of the tracks on that album. Um and maybe also somewhat in not just technique, but in mood occasionally, there can be almost a sort of melancholic mood that is dipped into, um, which you can hear in some classic heavy metal too on uh, Hammerheart. But I, I do think it's uh, interesting that as much as that album departs from the classic era Bathory that was uh, indisputably an influence on later black metal, that this Viking era black metal album uh, by Bathory seem to i think have some ways in which you can hear an influence uh on uh second wave norwegian black metal and i also know that like talking about burzum again varg vikernes uh had, there's quite a number of photos of him wearing a twilight of the gods t-shirt i think he's even in uh, varg has even said in some interviews that he was listening to hammerheart in some of the many car journeys he made 
um, to see Hieronymus at the time, and it was like that bled into uh, obviously bled into some of his um, writing sessions. But just to come in as well, I think your point is even strengthened further on um, Twilight of the Gods um, that followed immediately after Hammerheart in terms of the cyclical um, repetitions. And the, the interesting thing about Twilight of the Gods is texturally and stylistically, it's very similar to Hammerheart, but um, compositionally he takes much more of like a soundtrack approach where the songs don't develop as much they don't bounce around as much but they're more focused on sort of layering up um, different melodic chunks very simple melodic chunks and then just stretching them out and then focusing on the transition or the relationship between the two and I've always said and I don't know if this is true but I think it's a very formative influence on the likes of summoning as well where you you get these very long extended soundtracks, um, very simple when you look at it in the literal sense, but they have this sort of supervenient complexity that sits above it. That's partly sort of based on the atmosphere, but also partly based on the interaction of these little little cycles and sequences that that he's toying with. Um, that on top of just the you know the epic um, thematic material he's playing with, and I do think the intention was to go for more of like a background soundtrack to uh, to an idea which i think would have been very influential on summoning look at the title of it it's twilight of the gods that's taken from wagner's uh, last opera of the ring cycle um so yeah that makes sense that he was inspired by wagner there and uh it's an interesting point that it's kind of soundtracky like essentially you know what wagner created with the light motifs um is like a soundtrack per each character like they have their own little melody and that melody is introduced when the characters there's a big moment for you know whatever character and their light motif um so it's interesting they probably did approach it more you know he probably didn't understand classical music that much and um but he tried to ch channel like the abstract uh conception that wagner was working with in in a metal context but with, with these albums and it's kind of interchangeable for me with Hammer Heart, Twilight of Gods, and uh, Blood on Ice and all that. And Blood on Ice, you know, I, I was thinking of Battle on Ice from a, a Prokofiev. Um, so he, he might have gotten the title from that, or who knows. But yeah, it's clearly all obvious that uh, um, classical music had played a, an abstract role with Quarthon, but... When it comes to the music itself on these albums, these later uh, Bathory albums, it just doesn't work for me. The The acoustic guitar passages just don't do anything for me. It sounds like he's trying to elevate this high drama. And it, when I want music that does that, I'll just literally listen to classical music rather than uh, a metal musician try to be high-minded in that regard. Um, well, I don't, um, I don't see it, especially the acoustic stuff, and especially on Blood and Ice. I don't see that as trying to elevate. I see that as him introducing a folk influence as well on top of it. And similarly, as we discussed in the Celtic Frost episode, there's a difference between being influenced by classical music um, and actually understanding the forms of classical. Um, and yeah, I don't think anyone would argue that uh, Celtic Frost or Bathory understood how to write a symphony or writing sonata form but they still listened undeniably listened to some of these composers and lifted ideas and elements from it and applied it to their own music i'm not saying that makes it as sophisticated um but it's still the influence is there and it's worth calling attention to um 
in the same way that we we did we did for for Celtic Frost as well. Even as you as you alluded to, Jason, in in the abstracts as well. I think I think that's worth just sort of bearing in mind. Yeah, I will say this about uh, Twilight of the Gods, the like backing chorus, choir or whatever you want to call it, where uh, Corthon singing numerous you know voices. Um, that is easier for me to listen to than just a straight up singing when he's just kind of in the background going along rather than uh, his voice being up front and center. Um, mm. I can tolerate that a little bit more than I can just a straight up singing. But yeah, I kind of wish, you know, he just kept the the black metal going and it probably would have been more lucrative for him if he did. But we, we, we haven't mentioned uh, one of the, the things staring us right in the face is the LARPing with the sword in the woods. And I was going to let Joseph make a comment on Twilight of the Gods before we move on, but we can talk about LARPing unless Joseph wants to weigh in. Uh, I mean, I have all sorts of things to talk about both of these albums. Um, we've kind of hinted at them, but we, we can talk about the photo shooting and the imagery right now. Uh, I think that's fine as, as long as we we give it time to, to get back to, to other matters. So I'm under the impression if Rob Darkin never saw a shirtless picture of Orthon holding a sword, that Graveland would never exist. So I, I really truly believe that that uh, Graveland was like the in black metal, the 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 torchbearer of the Bathory legacy, um, with the LARPing out in the woods and the the textures and the Viking influences, and probably you know did it well way better than these. I people. can think of another band, but continue. Which other band? Nocturnal Mortem? Because I not, well, no, it, it just again, like I feel like just entirely different paths. But I mean, the clear, I think, inheritor of uh, of everything that Bathory was doing was enslaved. Um, just through the nineties, certainly at least. Um, I always kind of wrote off enslaved because of hearing their later material. I, I, no, the first few albums are good. Yeah, first, at least the first two. But I always feel like more uh, like when I listen to Enslaved, just to go listen to Emperor instead. But um, yeah, go ahead, Joseph. Sorry for stepping on you. No, it's just, again that was an aspect I was going to touch on, just sort of where Bathory turned into in the second wave. I I think it's fair to say Graveland. Certainly, when Graveland switched over from sort of the more satanic-ish elements into more sort of the historical medieval stuff. I, for ap- Absolutely. Bathory's there. And you, and you can hear it as well, musical influence. Um, but um, I mean, I think Shelley made a great point with um, Summoning and others. Um, but yeah, you know, some of these bands might just not be ones that connects with some of us here um like i would say immortal uh huge huge influence almost across their whole discography um and certainly enslaved uh until they became a bit more of a prog metal band um, i was about but, to mention the same thing with immortal like especially on diabolical full moon mysticism there's yes. some riffs on that album that are very similar to uh you know, numerous albums within Bathory's early discography, but I think even uh, what I've heard on uh, Diabolical Full Moon Mysticism is some very similar use of technique to um, to uh, some of the style that uh, Bathory was doing on Bloodfire Death. Immortal kind of discard to a large extent the Slayer influences on Bloodfire Death, but there's some uh, 
but there's some use of like oblique motion style riffing that was like made very prominent on Bloodfire Death that Immortal kind of take to a further extent on their debut album. And, you know, very even further in the Immortal discography, and I know we all have cutoff points with that, but certainly even in the early to mid period where there's a lot of fury, um, you know, and quick paced songs. On almost every album, there's like some sort of epic track or two epic tracks, and I feel like that's very much connected to what Bathory was doing on some of the like Under the Sign of the Black Mark and Bloodfire Death. And I definitely feel like once uh, At the Heart of Winter and everything that came after definitely pulls from Hammerheart and Twilight of the Gods. Fire Chariot of Destruction has the song River of Tears, which has Rob Darkin vocalizing the horses off of Bloodfire Death. I was trying to play that in the background. I'm sure if it went through, but that is Rob Darkin screaming like a horse right there. So that's so awesome. I love it. That is really interesting. I didn't uh, know that. I think even with Graveland's early records that you may not hear as much of the influence from um, Bathory's Viking metal era, but I think that to a certain extent, and this is probably true of like a lot of, second wave black metal but i think that there's a very obvious influence from bathory's early records on there with like the rawness and the simplicity simplicity of the riffing the kind of like streaming uh power chords and the lo-fi production so i think this would be a good point to sort of come in with um not a rejoinder but just an expansion of uh jason tyler's like queries on viking metal because um in the introduction i i yeah i i kind of um sort of spouted the orthodoxy on Baffery and that they, you know, um, created two genres um, almost from scratch um, in black metal and Viking metal. Um, For me, though, uh, Viking metal has always been less important of an influence because um, I tend to agree that I don't really understand what it is. It's it's a flavour more than it is an actual genre with its own sort of set of techniques and kind of conventions from a compositional standpoint because anything from as we've mentioned graveland to nocturnal mortem to basically power metal bands that sing about valhalla and so on kind of gets lumped in as as viking and um and we've also mentioned sort of early enslaved as well um and although some of them come from the same sort of oeuvre of kind of extreme metal that's going in a more folky direction um, you do get this weird bleed where it covers a lot of different bands from a lot of different backgrounds. And Tyler mentioned also folk metal as well. And folk metal, again, is, is I mean, for me, you might as well fucking say music metal because folk is such a broad category. And they don't really, when people say folk metal, they don't mean folk more generally. They mean a very specific type of Northern European folk music. And they mean blending it in a very specific way with a very specific form of kind of, jolly heavy metal they don't mean a kind of more sophisticated um like integration of of these music histories and i think that's why viking metal can be a little bit of an uh, unhelpful term at times for baffery it's literally true because he decided to return to a much more pronounced heavy metal influence but apply elements of um the viking mythology with elements of classical music that he was listening to um, and kind of created this thing almost by accident. And then later people ran with it. But I think people kind of got attached to this label of Viking metal as a specific thing. 
and I, I don't see it as a specific genre. I just see it as a flavor that scatters many different categories of, of metal. Um, and for that reason, I don't think you could say that the Viking arms of Bathory are any less influential. They're just not influential in literal techniques and composition. They're more influential in terms of aesthetic and lyrical themes and sort of an idea more than they are the actual music itself, if that makes sense. Um, before I jump into that, uh, Tyler and Jason, if, if you want to say anything uh, in reflection on that, because I've got kind of a, a long theory that connects a lot of dots. Yeah, I kind of uh, roughly agree with you, uh, Shelley, obviously, because I, you know, I, that's the question that I asked to the two of you. I think that if I were to say anything about heavy metal music actually embodying uh, like the spirit that of uh, Viking culture, which I feel like would be a very difficult thing to do because I'm in the grand scheme of things, we know so little about it. You know, uh, they don't have a lot of uh, recorded history from their own perspective. Um, and uh, we know very little about their religious practices and their um, and their cultural traditions. Um, it, like I said, in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, I would. Uh, but if you're talking about music that actually embodies like Viking culture, I, I would um, I would look to things like uh, Enslaved's first album, which, you know, I think does clearly take some influence technique wise from Bathory's Viking metal era albums like the using uh, acoustic intros and outros and interludes and even like the kind of emotional impact of their use of those techniques with like a sort of certain uh, melancholy uh, nature to the melodies as well as utilizing them as means of uh, building and releasing tension um, you know and then it you'd, uh, that reflects on Bathory's use of those elements in the sense of uh, you know you're talking about folk metal uh, folk metal can be sort of uh, if you're trying to define it in the most uh, sort of uh, technical way possible you know, it's an integration, like Shelley said, of uh, what you could call folk music or the use of folk instruments uh, with heavy metal. And I think that, you know, Bathory, not just subject matter wise, but even in technique, kind of cre accidentally created the idea of like Viking metal by one, integrating more acoustic instruments, which you could consider folk instruments to a certain regard. You know, he didn't use hurdy gurdies and, uh, you know, hammer dulcimers, but, you know, use more, made greater use of acoustic guitars and clean vocals. And then even the, the Wagnerian influence, you know, as far as um, you uh, Viking metal goes and t trying to take things that have some connection to Viking culture, uh, you know, ba Bathory probably wasn't as sophisticated as Wagner, but like with the use of light motifs, I would say like the way it transfers over most to me is like not just the idea of having melodies that consistently reappear, but having melodies that reappear in different contexts. You have melodies that you might have like a, a melodic theme introduced for a certain idea and then later on in the piece introduced and slightly changed. You know, it may sound triumphant the first time and then the second time sound dissonant or uh, even uh, somewhat in a more minor tonality to like imply like this object that this theme was referring to is now going through a moment that is uh that is uh challenging or that is uh introspective um but yeah so i think that uh you know viking metal and folk metal 
you know, you can, you can hear some of what I would, uh, you know, consider it appropriate, uh, like use of like Viking culture in some of those bands. And I think some of those bands were obviously influenced by Bathory, like enslaved for instance. Uh, but you also have Viking metal, you know, as Shelley referred to earlier, referring to bands like Amon Amarth. And I, uh, frankly hear little to no influence of Bathory in a band like Amon Amarth. Yeah. And, uh, just ch- kind of chime in one of the worst bands I've ever heard and just they're they're considered folk metal is Fintroll. Oh my god. It's like they're I knew all- you were gonna say Fintroll. <laughs> Fucking <laughs> terrible. Andy bullshit. Oh my god, I can't stand that. Um, Fintroll sounds like the dropkick Murphys with harsh vocals. It essentially is. Um but yeah, the the folk metal, not a not a fan of that at all because they always Usually they package it in a very happy demeanor, which is not metal in my opinion at all. Um, you know, there's high melodicism, you know, a lot of focus on major core melodies and all that, and it just does nothing for me at all. Um, but yeah, that's my kind of thoughts. But Joseph, you wanted to go connect some dots somewhere, so go ahead with that. Yes. Um, so I think we're let's see, start with this. So this will touch on where I think a lot of folk and Viking metal today, how it seems so des- uh, disparate from, you know, Bathory, yet there is that connection. Um, again, very parallel to the influence, potential influence of Venom on Bathory and certainly other bands in the mystery of, you know, Corthron saying this or that. Uh, me and a couple of my friends are pretty resolute in thinking that the Bathory Viking albums had a particular influence from Manowar. Um, I feel like if you listen to very particular albums and particular songs from early Manowar, you hear in part the Bathory heavy metal type sound. Um, and I don't think Quarthrone ever really acknowledged that. But you just listen to it back and back, and it, and it starts making way too much sense. Uh, in particular, Sign of the Hammer, especially where the stuff almost seems too obvious with sort of the Viking and uh, Conan the Barbarian type moments, like Thor, the Powerhead, Sign of the Hammer. As well, the album before, Hail to England, there's a few tracks that definitely get that. Um, when you hear him multi-tracking his vocals to do those kind of epic singing moments, uh, again, you can find that on those Man of War albums. So I feel like, and certainly time-wise, it's something that he probably was exposed to. Those came sorry out in to 19- jump, um Sorry to jump in, Joseph. I'll let yeah. you continue. But there is an interview out there of, of Corfon where he, he mentions one of the drummers that played in the early days, used to listen mm-hmm. to a lot of Man of War. Um, and mentioned it as an influence on them. He might have been alluding to a more uh, profound influence, given what you're saying. Um, but again, it's this sort of core fun delivering a half truth. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's some like, sort of lends credence to what you're saying here. That that's interesting. Um, yeah, I <laughs> it would be it would be nice to collect all of his interviews in, in a tome. Um, that would be interesting. Uh, and yeah, and given what we said with band members, that really may have been him just dropping a breadcrumb about his own influence. Um, but anyway, so the man, man of war influence there. Now, the connection of that between why there's this difference in Viking metal today is kind of goes to man of war in that 
there's this division, which I imagine Jason Tyler, you may have zero interest in this, but um, there's a division between what's known as U.S. power metal and European power metal. Um, generally, you can look at it as sort of like U.S. power metal being Man of War, <laughs> Manila Road, Sivirthungal, and then European power metal very much being Halloween and a lot of the bands that came from Halloween. Um and they're kind of distinctive styles uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm not going to get too much into the the weeds of that. But in essence, a lot of the European Viking metal bands, especially the ones with sort of, I imagine you guys would say, was sort of like Klopaklani or, you know, Fintroll, uh, highly melodic. Uh, I, there's that European power metal influence that's there. Whereas with Bathory and the bands that do take influence from Bathory that would concern himself some sort of um, Viking or medieval or folkish metal band. Um, there is much more of a, I would say that early man of war and then as well, other sorts of us power metal influence. Um, and I know with talking with uh, a musician like Alan from primordial, he, he may have been the first one to ever mention that distinction to me. Um, and certainly Primordial is a band that I think takes influence from uh, certain moments of Bathory's career. And even though they're not a Viking metal band, but they're certainly one with, uh, you know, certain folk-ish uh, roots. But, you know, because he, he mentioned just always hating that comparison to folk metal because, you know, they're not playing folk songs and they're not going da-da-da-da-da, like doing little dances and things. But I think he'd certainly agree where they come from is sort of a collision of the black metal of Bathory with the Viking metal era, along with probably some U.S. power metal. Well, in and, Primordial, it's, it's undeniable as well. Um, I mean, he even formed a cover band, a tribute band for a while, mm -hmm. Twilight of the Gods, um, covering Bathory songs. But also just, yeah, I've always, um, with Primordial, they're... There is an undeniable folk element to their DNA, especially in like the rhythm section where they take a lot of sort of Celtic rhythms. But yeah, they're mm -hmm. not folk metal in the way Fintroll are in sort of doing all of this extra instrumentation and kind of being a bit clownish about it. There's a bit more, it's a bit more subtle with the primordial. And I think again, even philosophically speaking, that again that comes from the Bathory element there because it's slightly more subtle what they're doing there. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was my general overarching theory and everything with that. Um, the other, the other thing I would say, especially if we, you know, uh, jump away from talking about Hammerheart and Try the Gods, um, just as a note, I mean, Hammerheart might be one of my all time favorite albums. Um, you guys mentioned sort of the limitations of the vocal quality. And for me, I've always found that charming. Um, I feel like in the way we talked about Celtic Frost always striving for something that was out of reach, I feel like he was doing that with his vocals. Uh, obviously, it was something that, you know, a different vocal approach than he was used to. And, you know, but knowing that he needed to do something in that realm to approach the, the theme and atmosphere he was going for. And for me, it's just such a conviction of emotion 
and desire that it overcomes sort of the lack of finesse and technicality. Um, and in, you know, in just the drive the point of how much that album means for me, uh, when I finally, personal anecdote, when I finally traveled to Sweden, I actually tracked down Quarthrone's grave, which is at a family plot where his father's also buried. Um, and basically sat down there and meditated with uh, Hammerheart playing on my headphones. Wow. I mean, no, I, I completely agree. Um, like, still when I listen to certain tracks on Hammerheart and Twilight of the Gods, it still it still gives me chills. Um, and it mm -hmm. kind of harkens back to what I was talking to earlier on with the earlier Bathory albums is that never quite being in control of your creation, but that itself gives it, power and that's what's always been so powerful for me about the classic black metal but it, it does bleed through into that viking era as well and i think aside from the obvious kind of um banality of what jason and Tyre have been referring to as modern folk metal i think that's also what's lacking is is modern theatrical folk metal, whatever you want to call it, is a very curated, controlled, sterile environment where they're very big budget productions. Um, they're, uh, you know, accomplished musicians, but they're recording in a very expensive studio. Every element of it is, is controlled. And I think that's what makes the early Viking Bathory arm so special is because they're, they're still DIY. They're still things where he's just trying something new and sometimes it doesn't quite work, but it's an environment where you feel like anything could happen like there's not everything is is completely sterile and clinical there's there's more of a, a soul to it in a way I, I can see how it can be charming for some people and i had a roommate at one point in time and we we're in the truck and he was blasting hammerheart and it just got on my nerves so much <laughs> so and um so uh, just to move on a little bit um so in the mid-90s, we mentioned, obviously, he released Blood on Ice, which was uh, actually recorded uh, between Bloodfire Death and Hammerheart. But then we get Requiem and Octagon, which were Bathory essentially returning to the Slayer influence. And just rather than releasing sort of black and thrash or what we'd call black and thrash now or returning to black metal, it was more of just a, him trying to redo 80s thrash but around the same time as well he also released albums under Cawthon his own name as a solo project even though Baffery was a solo project itself where he basically made a couple of grunge albums which are some of the worst rock albums I've ever heard but I own them on CD as I do all Baffery albums as well and um, to answer your early question Joseph I I go all the way with Baffery I'm a completist um but it was an interesting time for Cawthon in the um it's like he was trying to roll back on the ambition and grandeur of the Viking era and try and reestablish his kind of quote unquote rock credentials in a way. And they're they're confusing albums, but for me, they're definitely the the lowest point for me in terms of Baffery. They're just I would again, I'd just rather be listening to Slayer. Yeah, fully agreed. Um it's interesting you mentioned with the solo stuff and, and how grunge like it is. I I can imagine given it you know what his work was up to that point, kind of going in both grunge and sort of a return to 80s thrash, sort of uh wanting to compositionally 
be focused on sort of the here and the now in kind of a more modern or contemporary present situation and not sort of delve into these fantastical subjects, at least, you know, for a few years. Um, that that makes sense. I haven't listened to those albums from Bathory uh, very much. I almost wonder if also part of the explanation behind them is uh, something that I've seen happen to other um, heavy metal bands is that his uh, technique had improved. And I'm not saying that his technique was incredibly poor on early Bathory albums, but with an improvement in technique, he wanted to start experimenting with or trying uh, playing certain riff styles that he wasn't able to pull off as well in um, early uh, Bathory. And uh, it ends up being um, underwhelming because of the fact that his focus is on that. You kind of get a somewhat similar effect with uh, Burzum's album that they released not too many years ago, where he re-recorded a collection of classic Burzum tracks, but with uh, improved technique because he had become a better guitar player since he had recorded those. And they sound somewhat underwhelming in comparison. I mean, yeah, as, as with my musician's hat on, I could totally understand the desire to do that. But with my fan's hat on, I'm just like, that is a classic example of a creator not understanding the appeal of their initial creations and just not understanding why they resonated so much. And it's an interesting point, especially in the context of Requiem and Octagon, because then you move into sort of the Destroyer of Worlds era where the production dramatically improves as well. But Destroyer of Worlds is a really weird Bathory album in that it it has the thrash element to it, but he's also delivering some Viking numbers as well. And it really should have been either a sort of two EPs or a, a compilation of sorts or something because it doesn't really work in terms of pacing for that reason. But again, it, Bathory is an artist that I sort of, I follow... Um, long enough and sort of dedicatedly enough that I follow them through their failures as well as their successes. And just as an, a person that's interested in this, this man as an artist, Destroyer of Worlds makes for a fascinating listen for that reason, because you can almost hear the um, conflict playing out as to which direction he wants to go from, from there in terms of, do I try to just retcon thrash and try to do it right this time? Or do I develop the Viking thing given that this is now 2001 when viking metal was becoming more uh, more of a staple within sort of the metal community and then obviously we know that it kind of ended with the nordland albums which i i rate as really solid like heavy metal viking albums but i know jason and tyler given what they said so far about folk metal probably do not care for them but i think as far as kind of that oeuvre of viking folk metal they're not that like abrasive or hard to overbearing um i think they're they're the right balance of really solid songwriting versus um just understated enough to not be obnoxious and annoying but um when I was a child i really liked the nordland albums um but nowadays <laughs> uh nowadays i about the furthest i'll go with bathory and that i think is passable is blood on ice and blood on ice i think is okay but i very rare rarely uh listen to it anyway joseph i'm sorry to interrupt you please continue no no it's fine um i mean kind of 
just following the beats of what Shelley was saying, I, I have the same impressions. Um, I've kind of in recent years come around on Destroyer of Worlds. I kind of wrote it off, I think, based on the reputation. Um, but it's sort of half of a pretty good album. Um, the first three tracks in particular are, are some of the best stuff he's done, Lake of Fire, Destroyer of Worlds, and Ode. Um, and there's a few other that are good there, but there's also some that are just sophomoric. Um, uh, but it's it, it may, certainly makes sense that then transition to the Norland albums. Like you do get the feel of, you know, Destroyer Worlds was very much a transitory and him sort of maybe just dipping his fingers into all sorts of different things he was interested in. And then Norland kind of being, okay, we're going to focus on this. And it is true. Comparing the Norland albums to the previous Viking albums, they're structured in a way that's much less abrasive um and not saying that they're not heavier there's not really you know powerful songs there are but it's a little more kind of easy to soothe yourself into rather than kind of like a, a hammer in the face kind of feel um which the hammer heart kind of has um i i enjoy those albums uh, um it's hard for me to pick a favorite out of all of them but um Certainly, I think four tracks all together, uh, you know, in a row from Norland One, Ring of Gold, Forever Dark Woods, Broken Sword, and Great Hall Awaits a Fallen Brother. Um, that's just an excellent time. And I always enjoy putting on that album just to hear the those four songs in sequence. Yeah, for me, it's for me, it's definitely the first one. And um just just the title track, I think, is where it where it all comes together because I'd bought all of the Bathory albums in chronological order over a, a period of months being able to afford them. And it was like the perfect way to say like, ah, right, this is, this is the vision coming together. And like, I know what I said earlier on about um, sometimes a bigger budget and improved musicianship can ruin the magic to some extent. But given that I was already very familiar with the development of Corfon as a musician, you do start to hear his vocals dramatically improve. And um, the fact that he, was able to build more of a, a sonic world with all of these extra elements. Um, he doesn't go mad with it. He doesn't go completely off the rails and create something entirely like messy and unfocused. Um, and I think that's that's where these albums deserve praise. They're not like the most unique or um, special things in the world, but I think they'll always hold that place because you know they were his swan song. But also. Um, there was an element of restraint there that could have very easily not been there given that um, how much he's improved over the years. And I think going back one as well, that's what makes Destroyer of Worlds quite interesting is that you also hear that improvement in his vocal performance. I totally agree on the first three tracks on that album. They are solid, but he's, he's also developing quite a sort of unique sense of melody, but he's able to articulate it with his voice. But also that album contains some of his worst vocal performances on the Thrash numbers. He just sounds like a, a drunk homeless guy at times. And it's, it's it's interesting that you kind of get those two side by side on an album. But I think that just makes it all the more fascinating. But um, again, I would say they're not they're not the entry level Bathory albums. You have to be a pretty committed fan to um, to take enjoyment from them. <laughs> Agreed. And on, on the note of his interesting you know, vocals um, is I, I don't want to not mention this, but on blood on ice, um, 
has perhaps one of like the funniest things he's ever done um that i'm sure at the time was earnest um but the track one-eyed old man um i i musically enjoy the song but then it has this break where this it becomes almost like a lost 1970s like fantasy cartoon where odin comes down and talks to you know presumably the protagonist of of this album and you know proclaims him the promised one and it's this very again like feels like you know 70s 80s fantasy film and then as soon as you know odin's done with this little speech quarthron comes in like he's some 15 year old punk rock kid going yeah the chosen one yeah <laughs> and i i love it so much um yeah i was chuckling because i knew you were gonna say that but i i do fucking love that moment as well <laughs> it's it's the thing that you know in in the in throughout heavy metal it's something i feel like is one of those key elements that you either get or you don't and and part of the love of heavy metal is having these fantastical absurd moments um that seem to come straight out of like adolescence and you either love the charm of that or you kind of feel like you've grown too old and if you've grown too old you're to to have that love for it uh then metal you know might you know be more grating than enjoyable for you. i i think that uh while some of those moments those adolescent moments you're talking about can be very corny I do think that there is something to be said about uh, heavy metal in particular, uh, that there is um, virtue in it being unembarrassed to mm-hmm. embrace uh, being excited about something that is um, epic or, uh, you know, epic or cool or however you want to put it. That's like would seem like youthful to other people. Like it's not serious because you're not buckling down and worrying about boring mundane details, like making the trains run in time and paying your taxes. But heavy metal is unembarrassed to embrace those things and say, Hey, sometimes it, you know, indulging in really powerful emotions, whether they're sad emotions or whether they're triumphant emotions, is just something that is awesome. And I think that if you lose the ability to appreciate that, then yeah, you might not uh, really enjoy listening to heavy metal anymore. 100% agree with that. And one of my favorite moments from Battles in the North from Immortal is when Abbott is going overboard saying, <laughs> and it's just so comedic the way he does it at the end of the song. And yeah, he's not ashamed of it whatsoever. But then again, Immortal is never ashamed of anything. But I had a kind of thought here um, I'm kind of a, a, under the impression that as black metal evolved and started changing and assimilating a lot of different influences, um, and Bathory's influence on black metal started to wane over time, I think that is literally the decline of black metal itself, where you can't pinpoint, you know, much going back to the roots of it, of Bathory. Like, Shelly, I know you received a liturgy CD from Headbangers Trough. Do you hear any Bathory in that liturgy? I'm going to be completely honest. I've not actually spun the liturgy album yet. Um, I have heard liturgy tracks before, uh, so I can speak with some authority to say no. Uh, there isn't any 
Bathory influence on them, but I don't want to be a <clears throat> dogmatist and say it needs to be influenced by Bathory in order to be black metal. But I think speaking more broadly, um, the liturgy thing, and let's just take them for a stand-in for like the whole um, wave of post-2000 more abstract black metal. And that kind of, that covers a broad category, by the way. I'm talking like, you know, depressive black metal and post-black metal, um, big chunks of ambient black metal as well. And uh, sorry, guys, most of it does come from the US, although Europe is far from innocent in this regard as well. Um, the key driver of a lot of it is um, texture and aesthetics and creating a particular vibe and a particular mood. And some of it does it really well, admittedly, and some of them are adept at layering up sounds, but they, in the process, have lost the riff. And again, it's not that you need to have riffs in order to um, like, be create legitimate compositions, but you do need to have a focus. You do need to have something to guide the listener in and take them on some kind of journey or expand their mind in some way. And then if all you're doing is kind of applying various textures and ideas in an unstructured way, you're really just delivering a series of, of vignettes. And I think that's what liturgy are really doing is they're delivering some ideas, some oh suggestions of, oh, what if we did this or that, but there's no overarching vision. There's no, this is what it's all directed towards. And I think that's, that's in the broadest sense, the, the issue that I could, I could pinpoint here. And I think Baffery are quite a good stand in here is, you know, as a, like metaphor for that that former kind of thing where that there was always an overarching vision to everything that Corfon did and always an overarching vision to all of the classic um Norwegian bands as well that was guiding what they were doing and even if you go further and take um a summoning for instance like they didn't really compose in a narrative structure their songs were very cyclical as I mentioned but again there's that overarching direction and vision where they're heavily focused on the, the soundtrack metal as I call it um, and that is somewhere along the way. Um, I'm going to choose the turn of the century as a point of convenience, but roughly around that time, that started to be lost. And the popular like bands within black metal were much more focused on, yeah, just articulating sounds and suggestions and just vague tapestries of how they would like music to sound, but there's no, there's no direction to it. And uh, that is something I, I sorely miss sometimes. Uh, I think that segue, segues pretty well into where I was hoping to take the conversation eventually, which is not even so much just direct examples of uh, the sort of development of technique from Bathory into uh, second wave, uh, you know, particularly Norwegian black metal, but just the overall sort of uh, legacy of black of Bathory's influence on uh extreme heavy metal particularly the kinds that we all tend to roughly agree are the most excellent examples of the genre i do think that with black metal as it exists today uh shelly uh put it pretty much uh put it pretty well in that you see what happened with black metal the same thing that happens with uh many uh authentic uh, expressions of like outsider or underground music, which is that it gets reduced to a set of a, uh, to a it gets reduced to a sort of uh, um, collection of a, uh, techniques or to an aesthetic that is then just like a product, right? Like 
the difference between buying a cherry Coke or an original Coke. And so to be black metal is to have like higher tuned uh, guitars, you know, distorted guitars that play fast tremolo and pendulum, uh, um, you know, picking riffs and uh, shrieked vocals. And that's where you get bands like Liturgy or I guess to more so can uh, bring in Europe's contributions, bands like Shining, um, that feel that they are black metal because of they make use of those things, of those techniques and those aesthetics, but don't have too much recognizable connection to the historical phenomenon that is black metal, too much recognizable connection to bands like uh, Bathory or Celtic Frost or even the uh, second wave uh, black metal. Um <laughs> One of my, one of my qualms is uh, uh, and this happens with metal publications and the the mainstreamy you know where where the money is in metal which really isn't much money there but um, a lot of these people and I don't want to throw decibel under the bus but decibel and visible oranges is definitely uh, a, a contributor of this kind of mentality is that. They're all eras of black metal are essentially equal, and you treat the the newest acts that are gaining momentum as equal to uh, you know the the major you know foundational acts. Um, so that's how liturgy got thrusted upon us so so much is that where the little bit of money was to promote and all that, and uh, they're treating you know like wolves in a throne room as equal to you know early emperor or something like that, where they, they treat all these new bands coming up, these new eras, quote unquote, and post black metal as equals. And as the new, the new blood, you know, taking, you know, the torch and carrying it while they still try to respect the old one, the old guard a little bit, they seem to be more focused on whatever that new flavor is and they shove it down everyone's throats. And I actually really freaking hate that about how, uh, a lot of these mainstreamy, not necessarily mainstream, but you know, the bigger voices in the underground that they have some money behind it, and they seem to all have like the the same uh, types of views, um, and they just shove it down everyone's throats. And I think that really castrates the the true legacy of you know bands like Bathory, where you know they were such monumental. Uh, albums that came out and influenced such a, a strong and as Tyler said authentic form of expression and now we, we're getting essentially liturgy with you know uh Hunter Hendrix uh rapping and they're treating that as an authentic you know extreme metal and when it could be you know completely the antithesis of what metal is so well I think I think you yeah you hit on a good point there and I think even after reading um Daniel Lake's book book on USBM and the liturgy chapter I think after reading that you get the sense that even liturgy didn't want to be associated with with black metal in the early days they um they took a lot of influence from the yeah the aesthetics and some of the techniques um but they were sort of doing their own avant-garde indie music and for me, it's like I'm fine with that existing. And, you know, if it has an audience, then it deserves to be heard. But, yeah, I don't see the association with black metal any further than that. Like the reason I like Transylvanian Hunger is not tremolo picking and screaming. 
there's there's more to it than that. And I think that's what a lot of modern discourse in metal is missing is, oh, you like these surface level aspects of music, therefore you must like this thing that has similar surface level aspects. And it's like, no, like serious metal fans dig deeper than that. They they listen to the structure of the songs. They listen to the way the riffs communicate. They listen to they listen for an underlying philosophy and all of the things that we talk about with all of these classic artists. Um, it's and a lot of the discussion on metal these days is very superficial. Um, it's dressed up in fancy academic language, but that's just cloaking the fact that ultimately a big swathe of people that are calling the shots in metal now just don't understand it or don't understand what made it so special initially or they do um, they don't care and they just want ad revenue so well yeah well i you know i think on this i might be the most divergent in that um uh, i enjoy quite a bit of contemporary metal i mean i think just functionary in terms of the idea of outlets i mean uh, you know uh, any publication is going to be interested in what's kind of happening at the moment um and certainly in defensive decibel i mean part of their thing is every issue they have a dedication to a classic album that has to be at least 10 years old um so i don't think they shy or run away from the past certainly um well, you know and it's the new axis equal though and or well, I mean, in but then, you know, that really comes into it. You know, if you're someone who thinks there hasn't been or there's just lesser and lesser good metal in the last 20 years, then, yeah, you might have an issue with that. I, I, for me, some of my in my top 50 all time favorite albums, there's a sizable chunk from the last 22 years. So uh, it just all depends on certainly how you look at the development of this as a genre and if you certainly think it's on the wane then you know everything is just going to seem uh out of place um yeah i see your point I just brought uh, up, joseph i just but, brought uh, up some back issues of decibel in october of last year on the cover is a band called kin mode and they look like a whole bunch of hipsters not even metal um and they're on the cover and well admittedly decibels always said they're interested in extreme music i mean you know they don't shy away from the hardcore punk and post-punk and everything and you know that's not always my favorite you know cup of flavor and you know they've held festivals and concerts where i don't really care for the headliners or certain bands i don't care for but i don't think that's music that is entirely unrelatable to to metal I, there are common ancestors to a lot of this music and you know some people like this and some people don't you know yeah and and i see your point i and i i mean you make a good point you know it's a matter of like what your perspective on the quality of metal has been in the last few decades but i do think that something that i that i do feel no matter how you feel about it is somewhat lacking in contemporary metal as metal has grown as a genre is that what you see in earlier metal, and I do think this is very relatable to the place of Bathory in the uh, metal pantheon, so to speak, is that when it's a trend I've brought up before, many times before. So when you look at the entire history of heavy metal from Black Sabbath forward as a Black Sabbath as a conventional starting point, you mm -hmm. uh, see the development of a new form of extremity, so to speak. Usually metal is reaching for some form of extremity, you know, even with Black Sabbath saying something like they were trying to scare hippies. Um, 
And eventually that extremity, uh, for lack of a better term, becomes co-opted, right? Or you can even say, to make it less uh, divisive, that it becomes oversaturated. A lot of imitators appear, which is natural with the growth of something. It reaches more and more people the longer it's existed. And then there is a reaction in heavy metal of a group of people who really enjoyed that initial movement, who don't like um, what it's become as it becomes oversaturated, who are very dedicated to that earlier form, but then take that earlier form one step further. So you see that with like NWOBHM, and then after NWOBHM sort of gradually mutated with bands like Def Leppard into uh, glam metal or hair metal by combining heavy metal with sort of American radio rock. You see that with uh, speed metal. And then as speed metal sort of gradually move further and further towards being, I don't know what you could call some of the more mainstream forms of speed metal, like groove metal. You saw that with death metal. And then as death metal started to get big with bands being signed to Sony, like Carcass and Entombed and Godflesh, you saw a reaction to that with uh, black metal. And uh, what I think that is interesting is, like I said, all of those movements had like an extreme dedication to the movement before them, as well as a sort of reaction of disdain to what those movements had become that defined why their movement was different, even though it's also a continuation of the earlier movement when they felt it was better. I mean, even the black metal musicians like Varg, who sometimes has the most criticism about heavy metal before him, uh, said, you know, death metal was good at one time. I like the first album by Deicide or some other black metal musicians were really fond of things like Possessed, you know. Um, but what's really interesting to me is that after black metal, that never, I feel like to a certain extent, that didn't happen again. I don't know if black metal took the extremity as far as it could go, um, but it didn't really happen again after that point. There was no reaction that was both a sort of continuation of metal orthodoxy like oh you know only the very initial early heavy metal and early nwobhm and like the diy versions of those scenes and early death metal and classic norwegian black metal is true but they've all become corrupted and here is our new form of extremity that is a continuation and a response to those things you don't really see that happening past that point now you just kind of see bands recycling the aesthetics from those various movements in different degrees some more mainstream and some that are just kind of imitating past successes so to bring it full circle and to um put my two cents in um i would say the thing that defined baffery um is that they were pre-internet artist the mythology that we've alluded to a lot of times around corfon the um the messy uh recording situation the uh, you know the ambiguity around who was in the band aside from Corfon at various different times those kind of things couldn't exist once the internet and social media in particular started dictating how these scenes understood themselves um and i think that was the real tipping point was a yeah black metal probably took it to its utmost extreme and you can't get more extreme than what some black metal artists did um but also you get the rise of the internet which killed off um not just like you know fanzines and tape trading and all of that kind of organic infrastructure but also the idea that you could have a really mythological figure like Corfon who's 
you never quite know where you're at with him. Um, on the internet, people have to, you know, people try and drum up and create their own mythologies, but it never really works in the same way um, because of the pull of, of social media. And I think that also makes it very hard to create a scene that coalesces into something with the solidity of early thrash or early death metal or early black metal. Um, it, things are much more nebulous now. Things are much more, to use a, a hot button word, postmodern, in that people will borrow from aspects from totally different eras and styles and kind of chuck it in a melting pot. And um, like, I think you hit on a really good point there, Tyler, in terms of, yeah, black metal was kind of like the end. And I don't, I think not the end in terms of musical evolution, because I think metal has still been evolving, but it hasn't been evolving around a couple of fixed points where it's like, this is a movement. You get really interesting artists, artists that are staying true to the spirit of a Bathory, but still developing very interesting aspects of metal. And that's one of the reasons why I write on hate meditations. I try and shine a light on them, but I've never once thought, ah, this is now a movement. This is now a group of artists that all have a similar mindset. It's always just individuals or bands sort of off on different corners of the globe doing interesting things almost in isolation. Um, and I don't think there ever will be that again, as long as the internet becomes, it has much more of a stranglehold over how artists you know, promote themselves and develop themselves and consume music as well, but they will take influence from. You did a, you tried at one point to kind of categorize uh, various artists with different, very, very different textual components as the new avant-garde. Um, would you like to expand upon that or because? Um, well, um, various uh, musicians, but you tried to create like a, a, a category for them. Yeah, I mean, that's me almost writing a wish list where I take artists that I've encountered through writing for Hate Meditations. I've written reviews for them. Uh, they're either bands I know locally or bands I've come across online on the other side of the world um, and bands that embody, who might not even be metal in the strictest sense, but embody the same spirit, but also embody aspects that I think are very forward-looking and very, very avant-garde, <laughs> which is hence the name of the list, but very kind of cutting edge but still staying true to the spirit of something that I recognize as metal um, in a traditional sense. They're not just completely detached from the family tree, like a liturgy, which is one of the reasons why I find myself plotting. There's, there's a bit more of a, a respect for the past, but also a, a real profound will to um, look to the future. But the reason I write those lists and try and group them together is, is literally just me writing a wish list. It's like, if I had total control over the metal community, I would park these artists together and say, right, this is the new scene. This is These are the bands that are going to influence the next generation of metalheads in the same way that Baffer and Celtic Frost influenced the next generation of metalheads. Um, unfortunately, my platform isn't big enough to do that, but um, I can still write about it online and uh, hope that someone reads it. <laughs> yeah, and stuff. Go ahead. I, uh, um, you know, uh, just to the mercy of our listeners a bit um we might want to wrap up here because i certainly could talk for quite a bit and i think it would be an interesting discussion about the criticisms you know pros and cons of the current contemporary metal scene and certainly the media that uh, um influences it um but i think we're drifting pretty far away from bathory as a focus um, i think i think we are on topic with Bathory because Bathory was 
a radical and we don't have those you know radicals that uh actually express something meaningful or something genuine or authentic whatever adjective you want to put there in the the metal cannon it looks like tyler dropped by accident but uh um yeah I, I think it is very relevant to bathory because look at how beautiful you know the the radical nature of medical metal was and now it's been reduced just down to the textural components and various outside influences so and i do want to say that invisible oranges is owned by brooklyn vegan and if you look at brooklyn vegan's site there there is a lot more than just metal there there's rap there's comedy there's all kinds of stuff and uh, i feel like some of the bigger voices in metal are actually the antithesis of what metal is so and I, so and, oh, just to I bridge am, the uh, am i here now sorry guys you're here yeah 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 my uh, my internet cut out briefly anyway please go on okay. uh just to bridge the gap between joseph and jason's points um a we probably should wrap up soon because um I've got to have my dinner, um, <laughs> but also B, um, it is relevant to Bathory in the sense that I would be interested. It's just a thought experiment I play out in my mind sometimes is would a Bathory get the airtime that they deserve today? Um, I think there are artists out there that have a similar ambition of vision and the ability to accomplish it, but the problem is one of oversaturation, but also, and I know you keep pointing this out, Jason, certain publications do do call the shots more than they should, or certain journalists for those publications who um, maybe don't have a stake in, in metal in the same way that we would. Um, and they'll try to couch it rather lazily as us being sort of traditionalists or um, elitists and people who like, bringing in outside influences to the extent that some of these artists do as, as being forward-looking somehow. And I've always found that a very lazy characterization. Um, but I also think we can't understate the environmental factors at play here, given that anyone, literally anyone with a laptop can write and record a half-decent album now and distribute it globally. Um, I don't think a core fund these days would would have found the voice that he did back in the 80s. Um, and that goes for a lot of the artists that we've discussed as well. It's it's environmental factors for me more than it is the lack of radicals. I do come across them, but they just don't don't get the audience that I think they deserve. Um, yeah, I was actually saying that before I got cut out. I think that it's interesting in light of all of this talk about recent metal and about the trajectory of metal, you know, particularly in reference to black metal sort of being the end of that trajectory possibly being like as extreme as metal could go in relevance to Bathory to talk about that because I think it further highlights how influential Bathory was because Bathory is arguably the the largest influence on second wave black metal and if second wave black metal was sort of the kind of end point of the development of extreme metal then Bathory is a monumental uh, presence within heavy metal history uh i think that's uh it's it's really interesting to come to this point and you know when discussing that band in particular i i also like to mention as a side you know it's also uh serendipitous that we chose to cover this band on this day in particular because it is actually the uh, 33rd anniversary of the release of the album hammerheart huh, yeah 33 that's a uh... Good number. Um, 
So yeah, uh, and I'm sorry that we went off topic today. And there, there are a lot more culprits than just invisible oranges and decibel. And I, I do see decibel is more well-rounded in that regard a little bit. They give everyone a platform, but still they do call shots on who's on the cover, blah, 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 and all that. But uh, um, another culprit is certainly metal socks and different publications of that ilk. Um, Shelly, just I know we're hitting a, a mute point here, but I did see online that you got into a scuffle with Invisible Oranges, and I could not read the comments that they wrote because they have banned me. I don't know why, but they've already banned me, so I'm able to um, see what little squabble was going on there. But um, we did cover quite a bit of Bathory, and this episode did go a little bit longer into different territories. So I want to thank. Sorry, Jason, did you say I got into a scuffle with them? I could have swore I saw you comment on something of theirs and calling it false. I don't know if you're under the influence of some uh, English pilsner or what, but. Uh, um... uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that regardless, like I like I just finished saying, you know, a, a, a good end point for this is just that Bathory's influence is, you know, almost might almost be some of the some of the greatest influence out of any of the bands that we've covered on what metal has become as of today and i definitely think there are contemporary bands who uh, uh even if in a different way or a different color different hue carry on what bathory started and some of the other first wave bands started yeah, I would agree. Their influence lives on. I mean, there's bands like the new Sabbath record that's coming out that I'm very excited about that carry forward a certain Bathory influence. And there's other black metal bands that are largely doing the same. And there's even a lot of death metal that's very influenced by Bathory. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And even just even just taking Bathory in and of themselves, I think it is very rare for me to have a band where I kind of go through phases of one of their albums being my all-time favorite album. And there's like six of them that I oscillate between. And that in itself sort of speaks volumes about the breadth of Bathory's sort of vision and uh, their variety as well, and their ability to execute that vision. And just for the record, I have no memory of a scuffle with Invisible Oranges, but I was drunk online not that long ago. So it's possible that I did spout something that I probably shouldn't have, but I'll have to check that once we finished <laughs> oh, it was about something i forgot which band it was and you, you wrote something about how are adults writing about this band and i think that it came from invisible oranges and you wrote commented on something like that and yeah i figured you were under the influence because you never posted anything <laughs> and when you do it's just like this uh series of different posts and it's like yeah shelly's had one too many but <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm definitely guilty of that as well, but I typically just go into abstraction. Like last night, I was drinking, and Joseph and I got into a scuffle on Tyler's page. So, good times. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> Sorry, you you guys are all right. I, I felt I felt bad for the both of you, but I think that you know, keeping it on topic with this episode. Uh, if anybody wants to uh, mention any final thoughts on the legacy of Bathory in uh, heavy metal music. Yeah, I think we kind of already did. Like, uh, they're still there, but not as much of it. And obviously, you know, metal is morphed into a lot of different versions and different 
uh, entities, um, and some may not be quote-unquote metal, but yeah, Bathory is one of the most important bands to exist in extreme metal. Um, biggest influence on black metal forming, that second wave of black metal, and uh, it just the legacy lives on, and they, like, I just saw a video that was uploaded like a year ago on YouTube of a blood fire death. And that's almost to a million views just being up there for one year. And it was like automatically generated by YouTube somehow through uh, record labels or whatever uh, licenses goes on with that. So there, there is a still a firm foundation for Bathory and contemporary culture. Uh, whether that culture is, you know, steeped in meaningless postmodernism or whatnot, but the the fire of Corthon still shines brightly today. Any any other thoughts on that? None from me, um, other than the fact that yeah, he influenced pretty much all of my favorite artists, and he is one of my favorite artists as well. And um, yeah, like like I said, uh, pretty much six of his albums like rotate around in my top five all-time records and yeah that that speaks volumes about the breadth of uh Corfon's vision as an artist a truly unique individual awesome so uh thank you for listening today and sorry for the off-topic quote-unquote off-topic I, I still feel it's relevant but uh um but thank you for listening today and hopefully enjoy the conversation i think we covered a lot of bathory so had fun chatting about that